The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to see all of you. It's great to worship the Lord with you. You know, I was just telling Jimmy and Kayla backstage, my one complaint about worship is it's so wonderful. It's so awesome. A lot of times I forget why I'm here. I forget what I'm doing. Like, oh yeah, I have to give a Bible study now. So uh, that's the one thing, but it's just, it's wonderful to worship with you. We are going to be in the book of Habakkuk. If you haven't opened there already, kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, Considered one of the minor prophets, minor just in the sense that it's a very short book. It's only three chapters long, and we're going to be doing a little bit of an overview of it tonight. I would encourage you to sometime this week go through it, uh, read through it on your own, a very short little story, but it is powerful. And you have this exchange really between Habakkuk, the prophet, and God, and they're in this conversation and they're sort of going back and forth, and it's really amazing. He prophesied somewhere around 605 BC. And if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament and the children of Israel, then you know 605 BC, this is a fairly dark time for Israel, a fairly dark time for Judah. Of course, after the reign of David and Solomon, the nation divided in two. You had Israel, the 10 tribes to the north. You had Judah, the two tribes to the south. And really the sad commentary is for the majority of the kings of Israel, the majority of them were wicked. They did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel to the north didn't have one godly king. They were consistent in that way, consistently bad, consistently evil, led the nation astray into idolatry. Judah to the south wasn't that much better. They had eight godly kings who those godly kings could at least from time to time lead the nation in repentance and revival, get their focus back on the Lord. And so they kind of hold off judgment for a while. Israel to the north has already been judged by the Assyrian empire. And now Judah to the south, they still haven't been judged in large part because of those godly kings that were serving down in Jerusalem who had led the nation back into repentance and revival. When Habakkuk comes on the scene, here's kind of what you need to know. Here's what's going on. It starts off with King Manasseh. Now, King Manasseh was probably the most wicked king Judah ever had. And the really strange part about his story is right at the end of his life, he's gonna repent And he's probably in heaven. Such a strange thing to think about that you might be in heaven one day and you might meet King Manasseh and he'll be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I was the worst. I don't know what to tell you. I I repented though. and, And now I believe in God. But King Manasseh, he was so incredibly wicked and immoral and and violent. A few things that kind of have some distinctions for him is he killed a prophet that he disagreed with. That probably weighed heavy on Habakkuk's heart, but he killed a prophet that he disagreed with, extremely violent, extremely immoral. And King Manasseh, one of the things that set him apart is he didn't even try to pretend to be worshiping the God of Israel. He didn't even try to pretend to worship Yahweh. All of the other kings of Judah, they said, well, we can worship God, but we can also worship these idols. King Manasseh said, no, I'm not even going to pretend. Let's just worship idols. Okay, so after King Manasseh dies, this really wicked, evil king, there's a short little power struggle with some of his sons. None of them really stick. You have to fast forward to his grandson, Josiah. 
His grandson, Josiah, takes the throne. Now, the strange part about his story is he is eight years old when he becomes king. And the really strange thing is it actually works out quite well. I don't know how messed up a nation has to be when an eight-year-old takes over and actually it turns out to be a good thing. But sometimes I wonder, are we really that far away from it ourselves? I, I don't know. You know, how far are we from just coming to a little kid like what would you do in this situation? But Josiah, he becomes king. And it, it seemed early on he had good godly counsel. But then when he was 16 years old, the Bible says he really got serious with the one true and living God. 16 years old. Sometimes I think we kind of hold our young people back. We kind of belittle them in some way. Certainly our society does that. Sometimes it happens even inside the church. 16 years old. And he starts seriously following after the Lord. He eventually leads the people in repentance and revival. He's cleaning out the temple. And in so doing, they come across a scroll of the Bible. It may have been one of the very last ones in existence. And they read through it and they weep and they're broken and there's repentance and revival. And God does this amazing work and he leads the nation back into a real relationship with God Incredible blessing, incredible ministry, great reign. But the sad truth is, is when he dies, he's going to be the last godly king of Judah. And then it's a downward spiral after that. And now the nation goes back into idolatry, back into sin and immorality. And when Habakkuk is prophesying, all of that's been going on. He's probably old enough to remember Manasseh and his wickedness and his idolatry, but then Josiah and leading the people back to the Lord. And now here they've fallen into idolatry once again, and he struggles with it. He wrestles with it. As a matter of fact, Habakkuk, his name means wrestler. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a wrestler, but for me, I can't help but think about my dad. My dad was always a wrestler. He wrestled in high school. He wrestled at the University of Nebraska. I have two brothers, so we were always wrestling in the house growing up, and it was just amazing. It was so much fun as a kid. I remember I would get all hyped up watching some movie. I'd be watching like Rocky III. Now, if you're not familiar with this masterpiece, this film that is Rocky III. It's an absolute classic. And in Rocky III, that's where Rocky fights Mr. T and Hulk Hogan in the same movie. Now, if you're under 20 years old, you could Google that, look those guys up later. But my little kid mind blown away that in one movie, he takes on both of these opponents. And I would watch that and I would get all hyped up. And then I would come into the room to write, to wrestle my dad and fight with him. And he would play right into it. He would pretend to be Hulk Hogan from the movie and he he would even do Hulk Hogan's voice and I'd come walking into the room and he would say you're in trouble Balboa and then we'd start wrestling and fighting and he'd throw me onto the bed so great as a little kid not so great as a teenager though uh, when I started getting a little rebellious and mouthing off a little bit. Now, not so great that my dad was this wrestler because he would get me down on the ground, tie me up like a pretzel, and he would do this thing where he'd get real close to my ear and he would say, now you're going to admit that you were an idiot. <laughs> and I would say, well, I'm not going to admit that. And then he would tie me up like a pretzel again. Okay, okay, fine, I'll admit it. And the truth is, as I would like to pretend like it wasn't that long ago, 
that something like that happened, but actually not too far back at all, just a few years back, I was at my son's birthday party. So at this point, I'm a grown man. I have children of my own at my son's birthday party at my house. Some friends and family were there. Coincidentally, Daniel Bentley was there at this party. And Daniel comes walking up to my dad at some point, and he says, you know, Mr. Class, James here says he can take you. He says that, you know, you're getting old and, you know, he could overpower you easy. Now, most people would have laughed. My dad says, oh, yeah, he was saying that? Are you kidding me? And so there I am as a grown man. He's got me wrapped up like a pretzel and he's talking to me on the ground. And I'm looking over at Daniel, laughing his head off like one of these days. One of these days, I'll get him back. One time, this is the last dad story, one time I saw my dad in a physical altercation, uh, self-defense. Somebody was attacking him. And as I recall the story, I would love to have the video, the instant replay of it, because it's still a little foggy in my mind. At one point they were standing, and then a second mo later, moment later, they're on the ground. My dad's on top of them. He's got them tied up like a pretzel. And he's doing the thing where he's talking in the guy's ear. And he goes, now what you're going to do is you're going to get up and you're going to leave. And I remember watching the whole thing like, oh, man, I've been there. I know what you're going through, buddy. Just whatever you do, don't resist. It'll only provoke him. It'll only make it worse. But those are some of the images that come to my mind. But I think of the, a wrestler, someone who clings, someone holds on and doesn't let go. Habakkuk was a wrestler. He wrestled with the Lord. There were things that were going on in his life, in his ministry, in his nation that he did not understand. Things that didn't seem to be lining up. Things that he knew to be true in the word of God and his relationship with the Lord that didn't seem to be lining up with what he saw around him. And instead of just ignore that, Instead of coming to a place where maybe he could have let anger set in or bitterness set in or fear set in, instead, he clung on to the Lord. He wrestled with God. He said, I'm going to hold on to you until this makes sense. I'm going to hold on to you until I understand this situation and what's really going on in this world. And I think he becomes such an incredible example for us. In our day and age, as we look at the world that we're living in, at the nation that we're living in, or maybe when we look at our own personal lives and sometimes struggling with what we know to be true of God and his word doesn't seem to be lining up with my life. Sometimes wondering, God, what are you doing? When are you going to step in? How are you going to intervene? How are you going to turn this situation around for good? And rather than growing distant, Rather than just walking away, God says, no, come on, wrestle with me, cling on to me, hold on to me, wait to hear my still small voice because I want to speak to you. I want to reveal myself to you. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I'll start here in Habakkuk 1 verse 1 and just read the first couple of verses and we'll get into the study. It says, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. It says the, per the burden that the prophet Habakkuk saw, 
this heavy weight, this heavy burden that he carried. And I suppose part of that could be the coming judgment. He's going to be told in this book that judgment is coming to Judah. And I suppose that's part of the weight that he's carrying. But also, I would imagine it was just as he looked around at the nation and how far they've fallen away from the Lord and how it just burdened his heart and weighed down on him. In any case, one thing I think is for sure, this world has enough that it can throw at you that it will overwhelm you. This world has enough to throw at you that it can crush you. It can just take over. And somebody might say, well, now wait a minute. I thought God wouldn't give me more than I'm able to bear. Why am I going through all of these trials? Why am I experiencing all of this suffering? I thought God wouldn't give me more than I could handle. Well, the Bible says that he's not going to give you more than you can bear as it relates to sin and temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. And with the temptation, he's going to provide the way of escape and he's going to give you the power and the strength that you need. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So no one can say, well, I had no choice. The temptation was so strong. I had to sin. No one can say that. There's always a choice. There's always a way of escape. But as it relates to trial, tragedy, burdens that can be put on our shoulders and our hearts and our minds, the Bible never says that that's not something that we are going to experience. The Bible never says that we're going to live this life that is free from suffering or from trial. But the Bible does say, no, you can cast your cares upon the Lord for he cares for you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am lowly and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the Bible is promising us not a life that's free from burden, but the Bible says we can cast our cares upon him. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And as we give these things over to him, that's where the power, that's where the strength, that's where the blessing, the righteous are not moved, not because we're better than everybody else, or we have a life that's carefree, but because God says, no, I can carry those burdens for you. And so now here in verse five, here's the response that God gives to the prophet as Habakkuk is crying out and saying, Lord, what are you doing? What's going on in our nation? Because there's violence, there's immorality. It seems like the law is powerless. Nobody is following it, God. Nobody's doing it right. And so now here's the response that God gives in verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. God says, Oh, I'm glad you asked what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing, Habakkuk. As a matter of fact, you won't even believe it, though I would tell it to you, but I'll go ahead and try. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Babylonians, and they're going to come, and they're going to be an instrument of judgment. At this point in time, Judah is marked by idolatry and by violence. And it's almost as if God is saying, 
you don't even know what violence and idolatry is. I'm raising up the ba Babylonians and they're going to come and they're going to show you what violence and what idolatry is all about. And really therein lies the judgment. So often the form of correction that God brings into our life, it's usually not some outside source coming in. It's God giving us over to what we think we want. That's where we see the downward spiral of sin in Romans chapter one, someone who turns their back on God and they're resisting God and they're suppressing the truth. A phrase that gets repeated over and over again in Romans chapter one is, and God gave them up. God gave them over. God says, okay, this is what you want. You want to embrace sin. You want to embrace idolatry. Then go ahead and discover what that's all about. I'm not going to fight with you anymore. And that is the form of correction and judgment that's going to come upon the nation. And now here in verse 12, here's Habakkuk responding to what God has said. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. Habakkuk, at first he was really upset that God wasn't doing anything. He says, where are you in all of this, God? And now God tells him what he's going to do. And now he's upset with what God said. Wait a minute, the Babylonians, that can't be right, God. They're more wicked than we are. I understand we've got problems, we've got issues, but surely you can't use the Babylonians. You can't condone what's going on in their country. And in all fairness, it would be hard to understand. It would be like if God said, look, I'm going to raise up North Korea and they're going to be an instrument of judgment. And we would say, okay, God, we know that we have problems. You somehow found the one nation crazier than us. How could you possibly do that? That's what God was telling Habakkuk. I'm raising up the Babylonians and they're going to come and be this instrument of judgment. And he struggles with that. Because in his mind, it's as if God was condoning everything that they said and they did. And he didn't understand how that could possibly work out. And so he's troubled by it. It's this burden that he's carrying. He doesn't understand, oh Lord, this can't be. But one of the things that really comes out of this is so often when we pray and we say, God, would you please do something, anything? Oh, your will be done, Lord. So often we really have some ideas in our mind of maybe a multiple choice of what God could do. I'm not picky, God. I'm not saying there's only one way to answer it. But here, how about A, B, or C? I'm struggling financially right now, God. And so here's your options. A, a new job, a new job with better pay, better coworkers, you know, a place where they're not barking out orders all the time. I don't know, Lord, like just somewhere where I'm inspired to be the best me. I don't know, God, I'm not picky. New job, option A. Option B, maybe an uncle that I don't know about who's really rich and he passes away peacefully in his sleep. Everyone has a time and a place peacefully in his sleep and he leaves me like a fortune or something. God, I'll tithe it. You know I'm good for that, God. Everything will work out in the end. Option B. Option C, maybe another round of stimulus checks. They just got a copier machine back there in the treasury. Let's just crank out a few more of those. I'm not picky, Lord. Have you ever noticed that when you give God multiple choice, A, B, C, how often the answer is D, none of the above. 
God's almost like, no, 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 I'm not going to fall into your little box. I'm going to do something bigger and better and greater than you ever had imagined anyways. But it's hard to not come with some sense of we think we know how it should work out. And so Habakkuk is troubled. And he's wrestling and he's holding on to the Lord. But I love the place that he comes to in chapter two. In chapter two, verse one, I think there's so much of his maturity and depth of relationship that he has with God that comes out in this statement. Listen to chapter two, verse one. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. I think that's incredible. He comes to this place where he says, you know what? I need to be corrected. He comes to this place where I must be the problem. God's doing something I don't agree with. The problem must be me. I know the problem's not God, even though at this point he still doesn't understand, doesn't get it, doesn't see why this makes sense, doesn't realize how could God be using the Babylonians but he understands, he comes to this place where he says, the problem is me. It's something in my heart. It's something in my mind. And so I'm just going to wait for God to correct me. He says, I'm going to set myself on the rampart, on the tower. I'm going to change my perspective. I'm going to look up. I'm not going to think about the things of earth. I'm going to think about the things of heaven. And so often that makes all the difference when we can change our perspective. Habakkuk basically says, look, I'm down in the trenches and down here it's dark and it's hard and it's difficult and I can't see. I'm gonna change my perspective. I'm gonna look up and I think it's so easy to keep our heads down. It's so easy to be caught up in the cares of this world and everything that we have going on in our life, everything going on in our nation, everything happening in our own personal lives and just the busyness of life and all of the noise, all of the distraction and media and social media and our phones and our tablets and our computers and we can just be so overwhelmed with it. So easy to be distracted. You could be in a church service like this one and start thinking about what you've got going on this week. Start thinking about what needs to be done. Or the worst thing that could possibly happen, although that was before my microphone stopped working, but the worst thing that could possibly happen, a cell phone goes off in the middle of service. A cell phone goes off, and it's usually someone who for the life of them can't figure out their phone. It's like they just bought it that day, and they're trying desperately to turn it off, and it just gets louder. And then what we all do is we turn at them and look at them and, how dare you? How dare you let your cell phone go off? Don't you know James has labored hours and hours over this, and you let your phone go off? That's just despicable. And then what do you do? Then you pull out your phone and make sure you turned it off because it could have just as easy been any one of us, but you know, we're judging them. And then you look at your phone. Oh yeah, that guy emailed me. I never, I never contacted him again. I better handle that. So easy to get distracted with this life and the things of this world. And so often what the real answer is, no, I need to change my perspective. I need to stop looking down. I need to start looking up. I need to put my eyes back on heaven, put my eyes back on Jesus. And I love that he also fully expects that God is going to respond to him. 
He fully expects God is going to speak. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to set myself on the tower and I'll wait to see what he's going to say to me. I love that. I think it's important. Have you noticed that whenever you come to your Bible, to church, to some conference, whatever it is, if you're expecting that God is going to speak to you, isn't it amazing how often he does? You walk into the situation, oh, I know the Lord has something for me. I know the Lord wants to speak to me tonight. When you come to God expecting to hear from him, it's amazing how often he does speak. And why is that? Is it coincidence? You just happened to catch God at a good time when he had something for you? Are we catching him off guard, catching him by surprise? Like, oh, James, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I love you. I have a wonderful plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11. That's the best I got for you. Are we catching him off guard? Are we twisting his arm and making him do something that he doesn't really want to do? Or could it be that God wants to speak to us so much more than we realize? God wants to speak to, to us so much more than we give him credit for. And so when we come in expecting to hear, he's like, yes, awesome. I love you. I'm ready. I want to speak to you. I want to meet with you. I think it's so important that we come into the presence of the Lord expecting to hear from him and to meet with him because I think the opposite is true as well. If you don't think you're going to hear anything, you don't think you're going to receive anything, so often that seems to be the case. And so we come into his presence expecting to hear from him. Now, here is God responding to Habakkuk once again, this, this back and forth as you get into chapter two, uh, but starts off here after verse one, when he said, I'm going to set myself on the rampart. I'm going to wait to see what he's going to say to me and how I'll answer when I'm corrected. Here's God's response in verse four. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Of course, if that scripture sounds familiar at all, it gets quoted in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, in the book of Hebrews. Not bad for a minor prophet. He gets quoted three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. Of course, in the New Testament, that scripture is quoted to remind us this is the basis of our relationship with God. We're justified by our faith and trust in Jesus. It's not our righteousness. It's not our good deeds that makes us right. It's our faith in him. We are agreeing with God and his word. Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've offended you. I've sinned against a holy God. I'm deserving of judgment. I'm deserving of hell. But Jesus, I believe you came from heaven and you lived and you died and you rose again from the dead, conquering sin and conquering death. And I'm asking you, Lord, to have mercy. I'm asking you, Lord, to come into my life and forgive me of my sins. Change me. Help me to follow you. That is what justifies a person. That's what makes us right with him. Now, Habakkuk needed to hear this, I think, probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's kind of caught up in this us versus them mentality this good guys versus the bad guys mentality. And it was almost as if God was saying, there aren't any good guys. There are people who trust in me and there are people who reject me. That's really the only two categories you can fall into. There's no one that's really righteous. No, not one. And so perhaps he needed to be reminded of that. But perhaps he also needed to be reminded of the fact that, look, Habakkuk, you just need to give this over to me. The just shall live by faith. Behold the proud. His soul isn't upright in him. The proud 
the self-sufficient, the person who thinks, I don't need God. I can figure this out on my own. I don't need anybody else's help. God says, oh, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You're setting yourself up for destruction. The just shall live by faith. Sometimes we just have to give it over to the Lord and trust that he has a plan, trust that he's in control. Of course, this whole story reminds me very much of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob, who has this famous wrestling match with the Lord. At one point in the story, it refers to this person he's wrestling with as a man, another part as an angel. Eventually, it says that he wrestled with God. As you go through that passage, it becomes quite clear. Jacob wrestled with the Lord, and it says he wrestled with him all night long. Jacob, the heel catcher, the manipulator, the guy who was always kind of working the situation. I think today we would say he had trust issues. He had trust issues with God. He had trust issues with people. And he always felt like he had to take power into his own hands to make something happen. And so this wrestling match that he's in with the Lord that goes on all night long, so much of it, what it has to do with is he needs to come to an end of himself. He needs to come to a place of total surrender. Jacob, the heel catcher, he needs to become Israel, ruled by God, governed by God. And so he has to come to this place of surrender. Now, it becomes obvious at some point in the story that he wasn't going to stop fighting. And when that becomes clear, he would have just continued to go on. Eventually, the Lord, if you remember the story, it says he touched his hip and popped it out of socket. He touched his hip and, okay, the fight is immediately over. Which tells us something very important. When you're wrestling with the Lord, if it's going on and on and on, it's not because you're evenly matched with God. It's not because you brought up a really good point and God's like, I've never thought of that before. Wait a minute, give me five minutes. That changes everything. When we're in a long wrestling match with God, it's not because we're evenly matched. It's because he's incredibly gracious and he's patient and he's waiting for us to respond. And maybe we should respond quickly because you might walk with a limp afterwards. But Jacob, he wrestles with the Lord all night long. God touches his hip, pops it out of socket. But then if you remember, he clings on to the Lord and he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Now, in the book of Hosea, it says that Jacob said that with tears in his eyes. So he's not making a command. He's pleading with God. I can't let go until you bless me. I need your power. I need your strength. I get it. I can't do it on my own. I can't keep working the situation. I can't carry the burden of life. I need you. I need your power. I need your blessing. And as he clings on to the Lord and refuses to let go, there's this blessing for him. That's right where Habakkuk's at. In chapter two, this is Habakkuk clinging on to God. No, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And then you see the blessing that comes to Habakkuk in chapter three. In the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk starts off by saying, okay, God, I heard what you said and it scared me. 
I panicked a little bit. I get it. I understand the bigger picture now. I realize what you're doing. I realize that there is going to be judgment that comes. But you know what? In spite of all of that, God, in wrath, would you remember mercy? Would you revive your work in the midst of the years? Lord, bring revival. Bring revival to this land. Bring revival to your people. Lord, revive me. Revive my heart. Stir it up. Don't let the fire go out. Would you breathe fresh life into me? He comes to this place with this incredible perspective. On one hand, understanding, okay, I get it. Judgment is coming. But Lord, that doesn't mean that in some small way, Would you bring change? Would you bring growth? Would you bring revival? And I think about that as it applies to us in our day and age, because really we could say the same thing. We could say, okay, God, I get it. In the big picture, in the big scheme of things, the kingdoms of man fail. There's not going to be a kingdom of man that goes on forever and ever. It's only going to be the kingdom of God. And I understand it. And Lord, when you bring judgment and when you bring correction, I get it, we deserve it, but Lord, still, would you revive me? Would you revive this work? Would you revive this church? Would you revive my community? That it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. There might be some judgment, there might be some correction, but at the same time, God, would you pour out your spirit? And why? Because it's still the acceptable year of the Lord. It is the door of the ark is still open. People can still be saved in a moment. Someone could be headed towards hell, headed towards judgment. In a moment, they could say, yes, Jesus, would you come into my life? And that changes everything. And where Jesus is, the kingdom of God comes. And so there's revival, there's growth, there's things that are happening and moving. And so Habakkuk comes to this place because he wrestled with the Lord because he was clinging on to him. You know, I think it's so easy when we go it alone, we, we become fearful, we become jaded, we sort of act like, no, everything's going to hell in a handbasket anyways, and I don't really see any real hope of change, any real hope of revival. It's when we hold on to the Lord and we press tight into our relationship with him that our perspective can change. And so he says, Lord, would you bring revival? Then at the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter, it ends with a song. It says that it's set to music. So I thought I would sing it for you now. And then the better part of my judgment said to not do that. So I'll just read it. But it ends with the song. It says in verse 17 of chapter three, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills. Incredible, really. I don't know too many wrestling matches that end with singing, (laughs) you know, but when we wrestle with the Lord and we're clinging on to him, It does. It ends in a song. It ends in worship. It ends in praise and adoration. And it's incredible. When you go back, you look at chapter three and it starts off with hope for today. God, would you revive your work in the midst of the years? 
that even though things are going on in our world that we don't understand, and sometimes it seems chaotic and out of control, the truth is there's hope for today because there's hope and there's power in the name of Jesus. And so he starts off with there's hope for today, but then he ends the chapter with there's also hope for tomorrow. There's the hope of heaven. And the truth of the matter is, is no matter what's going on in my life, and even if there's no fruit on the vine, I hope there's fruit on the vine. I hope you experience all of God's blessing and provision and walking in his power and his joy and his peace. I, I pray there's fruit on the vine. But Habakkuk is able to come to this place where he says, you know what, though, but even if there isn't, even if it doesn't work out the way that I was hoping it would, even if I go through times of struggle, I can still praise and worship the Lord God of my salvation because the bottom line is he's forgiven me and he's redeemed me. I've been bought with a price. I belong to him and there's the hope of heaven. And so he's able to say, no matter what is going on, God, we can give praise and adoration and worship to you. And you and I can do the same thing. Because one thing I know for sure, this world, it's like a raging sea. And all of the storm of this world and all of the craziness that's swirling around, it's right at the surface. And when you stay on the surface, you'll get tossed by the wind and the waves and it's chaotic and I don't know what's happening. But there is a peace and love and joy that runs deep deep from the presence of the Lord. And you can have an anchor for your soul. You can find rest and trust in him. No matter what you're going through, no matter what trial you might be in, no matter what wrestling match you might be in with the Lord, maybe it's something big, maybe it's something small, but you can cast your burdens on him because he cares for you. He can carry the weight that you could never possibly carry on your own, but we have to be honest with him, real with him, Sometimes we have to stop caring so much what other people think, how freeing it is to just say, you know what, Lord, I'm stand before you and you see my life and you see my heart. And sometimes when I'm being honest with you, I might not look as spiritual as I want to look in front of other people, but God, it's having a right relationship with you. That's what really matters. And of course, that's what he's after. He's not after perfection. He's after our hearts. He's after a relationship with us. And so we have an opportunity tonight to meet with him and to sit at his feet as we enter into a time of worship now and just be able to come before the Lord, cast our cares upon him, worship him as king. And so let's come before him together. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love and your grace and your patience with us, God. Lord, I just pray for each person here tonight. Lord, you know them by name. You know exactly what's going on in their life. And so, God, I just pray that you would meet with them right where they're at. That they would know that you're in this place and that you love them and care about them. Lord, we pray that you would bind the enemy. He's come to rob, steal, and destroy. He's a liar and the father of it a murderer from the beginning. And so in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray that you would bind the enemy in this place, that your Holy Spirit would come and move amongst us, that you would have freedom to reign in each and every one of our hearts. Minister your word to us, Lord.
We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.